We've been doing a series called Multiply Faith uh, over the uh, summer, and we've been looking at different biblical characters in the Bible, in the Old Testament, and looking at what can we learn from their life, what values, what principles um, can we learn that we can apply in our lives, in our situations that we live in. And so about three weeks ago, a lady called Claire looked at Ruth, and Nigel looked at Nehemiah the last two weeks. And originally, my wife, Katie, was going to be speaking. She wrote a great talk on Esther, and, uh, and I'm hoping at some point she'll get an opportunity to do that. But, um, yeah, give me a minute. Um, just over, just under two weeks ago, when I was overseas, my wife rang me to say my father-in-law had died. And um, as I was kind of reflecting, you get quite a lot of time, because one of the first things I did was try to get back to the UK, uh, which I managed to do on the day. Uh, you get quite a lot of time just to reflect and to, to think. And I knew Katie was meant to be doing this talk. as a great talk. Get out there, change the world, the kind of talk that I normally like. Because those who know me, I'm very much involved in just get out of this building and just transform the world. And um, I didn't feel it was the right talk for this uh, moment. And so as a person who processes by writing talks, um, I just felt it was an opportunity to do a talk in church about how to deal with loss, what to do in a place of loss or disappointment or frustrations. And I think it's important for a number of reasons, because if we can't talk about those things here, where can we talk about them? If we can't talk about the realities and the difficulties and the pains of life in a place like this, where can we do that? And I feel sometimes that Christians are some of the worst at this. You know, how are you doing? I'm good. I was at a conference when Katie told me the news and she said to me, do you want to stay or not? And I said, no. I said, I find it really hard because I've been meeting hundreds of people speaking to me. And I either got a choice. I either kind of like begin to cry or I lie. You know, either I go like, it's all okay. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah, I'm doing fine. It's all good. Or I'm going to go, you know what? My father-in-law just died this morning. And, and, you know, they might not know how to deal with that. So we can't talk about these things in places like this. Where can we? Secondly, you know, as followers of Jesus, how we handle these situations should be different. Because as it says in a book in the, um, what's called the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, it says, we are not people without hope. As followers of Jesus, we are people of hope. Partly even what we celebrate is a declaration of hope. And so it should affect the way that we live. We should have a different mindset, a different expectation. Because we know it's not the end of the story. We come with what we've been talking about, and my apologies if this is the first time that you've been here, but most of this summer we've been talking about this concept, the kingdom of God, the reality of the kingdom, the reign of God. And so as we look at the Bible, our kind of, as followers of Jesus, our kind of manual for life, we should be able to learn how to live a kingdom of God lifestyle that's not just for when we die, but for how we live. How do we live a life in all its fullness in spite of loss and pain? And, and so I said to Katie, can I, can I do a talk? Because I know someone in the Bible that can relate to that. And so we're going to talk about David and, uh, and David in the Bible. 
Now, he lived roughly around 1,000 before Christ. And if you've been brought up in church and you've got a church background, and if you don't, let me just fill you in. But he's often just associated as this kind of great hero who rescued this nation Israel against all the odds. He fought against this guy, and the image there is called Goliath. And he kind of wins, he becomes king, he makes worship the center of all life. And even now in the kind of nation of Israel, he's kind of seen as the kind of zenith, the kind of the, the highest level when Israel had its greatest influence and power. But there's way more to his life than those bits. Who likes um, roller coasters? <laughs> He did before he went to Alton Towers. Now he doesn't. That's my, that's my oldest boy, in case you're wondering. And uh, I managed to do it. It's amazing. You can do most things if you keep your eyes closed. It's, uh, and uh, <laughs> pray hard. But I don't know if you like it. I used to be able to do roller coasters. Now I just kind of feel a little bit sick. But I'm just going to take you on a roller coaster uh, journey through, through David's life. So you ready? It's going to be fast. It's going to be some twists and there's going to be some turns. You're strapped in. You always make sure you're strapped in. Yeah, that's it. I can see people doing it. Get over your head. And, um, but we're going to go through his life because there's way more to his life than just this story about Goliath and this story about worship. And Because uh, there are many things in David's life that did not work out. And some of those you may be able to connect with. But if nothing else, you'll be able to connect with some of his sentiment. And most of what we know about David is written in a couple of books in the Bible called 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. If you kind of flick your Bible to the middle and then you kind of work your way back, you'll find those. But I'm going to just rush through. So you ready? Yeah, here we go. Well, his first mention of him is in 1 Samuel 16. There's a prophet called Samuel. He'd been told by God to visit a man called Jesse and to anoint one of his sons as king. Jesse lines up all his sons, but crucially, David is not there. And God tells Samuel that none of these are the right person. So Samuel asks Jesse, does he have any other sons? And he says, yeah, actually, I do have a son called David. He's tending the sheep. And David comes in. He gets a kind of anointed, you will be king uh, in the future. But we see right from the start that things weren't actually... Uh, easy for David. Like, your dad invites everybody except you. And I used to wonder why. I was thinking, well, maybe he was, maybe because he was the youngest. But as you begin to just research, there's a few things that a number of commentators say about David. Many people think that David was actually an illegitimate son. And so that was one of the reasons why he wasn't invited. He was an embarrassment to the family. If nothing else, by being a shepherd it would mean that David could not fulfill the law of Moses and therefore he would be considered unclean. So not the greatest start uh, in his life. However, as I said, Samuel anoints him, promises that he will be the next king. In the next chapter, we have the story that we mentioned already, one of the kind of, yes, amazing David. As a young lad, he fights and kills a giant called Goliath from the Israelites' arch enemies these people called the Philistines. Everyone is cheering him on. He gets employed to work in the king's court. But in chapter 19 of Samuel, his employer turns on him and tries to kill him. 
Wow, I mean, talking about a bad day when your employer tries to kill you. Now David's on the run. It's not looking much like this promise is going to come to pass. And the next few chapters of this, uh, David's life in 1 Samuel is all about David being on the run. In the process, those he turns to to help turn on him and betray him. Those he shows compassion to give none in return. He lives in the deserts and he lives in the caves. He lives in kind of dark, gloomy, lifeless situations. Maybe you can connect with that. Things get so bad that by chapter 27 of 1 Samuel, to escape this kind of persecution from the king, he goes and lives amongst his arch rivals, the Philistines, to survive. And he has to pretend to be insane. I mean, that's a real low. Live with your enemy and, and live as a madman to stay alive. Wow. You still there? Nobody's fallen out of this roller coaster? Good. Uh, not the greatest on health and safety. Then in chapter 30, even when you think things cannot get any worse, they do. Because while David and his men are away, his wife and his children get kidnapped, everything they own gets stolen, and now, shall we say, his employees are threatening to kill him. Wow. Your employer tries to kill you, now your employees are trying to kill you. I mean, that gets pretty bad. Then the book of 2 Samuel doesn't start any better for David. His best friend, Jonathan, is killed. There's a few chapters where there's a period of civil war in Israel. And by chapter 5 or 2 Samuel, things seem to have settled down for David. He's finally the king of this united kingdom of Israel and Judah. He's winning every battle he undertakes. Worship has been set up in Jerusalem, his new capital. Financially, he's doing well. Then he has a moral fall, commits adultery, and the next few chapters are a catalogue of losses and disappointments. His newborn son dies. His eldest son rebels and commits treason. David is on the run again. There's sibling rivalry that results in them killing each other. His right-hand man lets him down. He makes strategic decisions that result in disaster for him, and he ends up dying a lonely man. Well, this may be David as you don't normally think about him. Well, that was a cheerful roller coaster ride. But like I said, it's a roller coaster ride, but I wanted to focus in on him. As I was sitting at the airport and I was thinking, who in the Bible can I draw on? My mind was drawing to David because he had so many things that he could have regrets about choices, decisions. Some were the result of his choices. Some of them were the result of other people. He was at the mercy of their choices. He'd suffered loss. He'd seen death. People really close to him. And maybe you can associate with some of those things. Maybe you can associate with some of those things this very morning. If not, as people that live even as followers of Jesus, we are not immune from these fiends. So how do we deal with them? How do we react with these fiends? Well, another reason I wanted to focus in on David is because of two reasons, or maybe a better way of putting it, two verses. We're told in 1 Samuel 13, verse 14, that he was a man after God's heart. In spite of all the things I just talked about, and if you actually look at it, 
you, if you kind of did you know, verses or chapters to do with kind of like success or loss, you'd say he's got more loss or more pain. He still remained, had this phrase, that it's not given to anybody else, a man after God's heart. And secondly, that, um, that verse from 1 Samuel 30, the context of that one was the one where he just lost his wife and his children and financially everything had gone and then his employees are trying to kill him. I mean, that is a bad day. And it says, he strengthened himself in the Lord. And so as I was kind of just processing my stuff when Katie had rung me, I knew I had a little bit of time before I could get to the airport. It's like, God, what can I learn from David? What can we, as followers of Jesus, learn from David? So if 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel will read about the facts of his life, as I took you through very fast, and feel free to read it more slowly later, that's kind of the information about his life. What was happening in his heart if he was a man after God's heart? How in the midst of all that I wrote about was he able to strengthen himself? Because it would have been so easy for him to become bitter. It was so easy for him to become angry, for him to be actually become depressed in all that was happening. What was happening in his heart? To see what's in his heart, we have to turn to another book in the Bible. This one, if you do open your Bible right in the middle, the probability is you will hit a book in the Bible called the Psalms, a collection of kind of songs and, and prayers. There's 150 of them, and roughly people agree that between 73 to 75 were written by David. And as we read those, we begin to get a glimpse into his heart what was happening and what we can learn from that. So I'm going to give you a number of verses. I'm not actually using the specific passage, but we've definitely got a lot of the Bible in this talk today. And, and the first thing I put is I put you knew how to process. And what I mean by process is just kind of you face this situation. It's like, how are you going to deal with this? How are you going to process it? He knew how to process things. He knew how to voice his emotions. He did not kind of bottle things up. You know, in some ways, David was the ultimate real man. He didn't just put a brave face on things. He said things as they were. And I think one of the first things we could do as a church is learning to become like that. One of the things I learned about being 11 years in the Middle East some of the things that Middle East people are very good at doing is, one, they know how to celebrate well, and secondly, they know how to lament well. I would say that the average Westerner is not good at either. We're not great at celebrating, and we're not good at lamenting. We talked about celebration before. Today, I'm focusing more on the, the lament. And so, I mean, I could have given you verse after verse after verse. I've given you a few there. You know, Psalm 13, how long, Lord? I mean, how many of us have prayed those prayers? How long? Even as I'm saying that, there's some people here that are still praying that prayer in relation to certain situations. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? Does that echo with some of you? I suspect it does. Not now in certain situations. How long will my enemy triumph over me? 
Psalm 142, I cry aloud to the Lord. I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. I pour out before him my complaint. Before him I tell him my trouble. My, you know, Psalm 6, 3 and 6, my soul is in deep anguish. It's not just anguish, but deep anguish. How long, Lord? How long? You hear that again. You know, God, how long is this going to happen? Why did this happen? I'm worn out from my groaning. All night long, I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. And so you get that kind of reality. He doesn't mince his words. You see his sadness. You also see his anger. I haven't got this one up, but this is Psalm 10, verse 1. Why, Lord, do you stand off? Why do you hide yourselves in times of trouble? You know, he's being real. He's being raw. He's voicing his emotions. And you notice with pretty much all these psalms, you look at it, it starts with one of, the, one of the first few verses of the psalms. And let you tell you, for me and for each one of us, if we want to grow in this, this is a good place to start. Vocalize it. Because if you don't deal with it, you end up burying it. And take it from me, it will come back and do more harm. You've got to learn to deal with stuff. Now, some of you might say, no, don't vocalize it, don't speak it out, because that doesn't really show much, much faith. And you're doing a series on kind of, you know, maximizing faith. Living by faith, let me tell you, does not mean living in denial. It is acknowledging the truth and the gravity of the situation you may be in, the pain and the loss you may be in, but getting the direction of your eyes back on God. We're not one of these churches that says, just deny the stuff. It's all okay. No, it's not okay. Some of these situations should not happen or shouldn't have happened. But we can still be people of faith that live through that. But you need a process, whatever that looks like to you. Um, those who are local know that, um, well, you might not know, but there's a, a footbridge that goes over the M3. That's where I normally go to process. Because I love it, because I can yell and nobody can hear me. And I, I, just, I, like to, I just get things off my, my chest. That's where I do my how long, Lord, or will you forgive me, or what's happened, God? Uh, nearby is also some fields, and occasionally go there. It's just a little bit more convenient because I don't live in, in Winchester. But you've got to have some place where you vocalize these things and you let go of these things. I'm a yeller, I'm a crier. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's just me. And, uh, but you've got to process. You've got to process it. doesn't matter what your personality type is. I'm actually what's called an introvert, but I can be quite loud when I process. We've got to process. Secondly, be aware of what you run to or go to hiding. Where do you go for comfort when things go wrong? When things are hard, I feel like God's saying to me, when things are hard, we have a choice. What do we run to? Where do we go and hide? And the list is endless. I'll throw out some. Uh, maybe you find yourself in there. Self-pity, anger. Uh, I remember, you know, even things like exercise, I remember, and I'm not saying this is necessarily bad. It becomes an extreme. 
Um, so I know when I, what helped me get through my teenage years was my running. Often if I had bad news, rather than running eight miles, I'd run maybe 12, 14 miles. It was just my way of processing things. Maybe when things begin to go wrong, you turn to drink. Maybe you turn to food. Maybe you turn to Netflix or more internet. Maybe pornography. Fill in the gap. What do you go to when things hurt that you think did in the pain rather than turning to God? Ultimately, some of the things I mentioned are not bad. I, um, ironically, one of the first things I did when I came back to the UK was when I went shopping. I, 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 those who know me, I, I love Coca-Cola. Classic Coca-Cola. Nothing else, just classic. And because uh, I thought this is going to be a hard few weeks. I wouldn't mind an occasional Coke. Just to sit down, just me, God, the Coke. I mean, whatever, as I always say in this church, whatever works for you, I'm just showing what works for me, but you've got you to have a place. But ultimately, my dependence and my hope isn't on the Coca-Cola or whatever it is. It's got to be in God. What do you run to? And you see this again and again in the life of David. You know, here's a, a few of them. You know, Psalm 142, verse 5, you are my refuge. Psalm 27, 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? Psalm 18, verses 1 to 2, I love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Where do we run? And what do we hide? Where do we get comfort from? And I'm not saying it's necessarily easy and you swing. You know, I had a lot of emotions over the, this kind of last week, but I just I'm saying, God, help me run to you. When I think about running to God, I think of two things. One is just running to his presence, and I'll say a little bit more about that in a minute. The second thing I run to is kind of the, what I call the bedrocks in my, my life. And... Um, I have this image. It's actually really hard to get this image because uh, most rock climbers um, kind of don't allow you to use their photos. And, um, but you have this picture where he's just hanging there, lifting on his hands, but if he let go of his hands, it'd be depending on that rope holding. What are we holding on to? And I find in my situation, this is what some of the stuff I've been doing the last kind of couple of weeks, I go back to some, for me, I call the basics. God is good. You know, a verse I learned as a child in Romans 8, you know, he works all things together for those who love him. It might not look like that at this point in time, but he works all things together for those who love him. You know, even um, David in Psalm 27 said, I would have despised. Despaired. I would have despaired unless I believed I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And so I come back to that truth that God, you are good. You are always good. That your kingdom is a good kingdom. I come back to the aspect that God, you are faithful. I've been through knocks and bruises. This one might seem particularly worse than maybe one I've been in before, but you have been there. And then I um, come back to God is sovereign. It's kind of a theological word, kind of means in charge. God, I believe that you are in charge. I believe that you are all powerful. 
I believe that you can do abundantly more than I can ask or imagine. That you are unchangeable when everything around me seems to not seems to be changing. And so I come back to these things. And I don't know what it is for you. Maybe it's some of these things. But I just go back to those verses. I go back to those truths. I rearrange my diet, as I call it. In the sense of what I read in the Bible. Even just the books. I went back to a, a book by a guy called Bill Johnson. It's just called God is Good. And I just begin just to feed on those truths and I acknowledge those truths. Like I said, it's not living in denial, but it's looking to a greater reality. And so that is where we have to go quickly, because my time is running out. Kind of just feeds on from that. David just fixes his eyes on, on God. I don't know, some of you might have to remember back a few years ago, I remember doing it with my kids. It's probably the most recent time I've done it, because as I said, I'm not so good with these things and not getting sick. But were you just going to spin around? Yeah. If I had time, I'd get you to do it. No, I wouldn't. Uh, you know, and you spin around and you kind of fall over, you know, and the kids do it and it's funny. But the problem is that as adults, we carry on doing it and we fall over. Our lives are in a spin and we fall over. And as you probably know, the, the way to avoid falling over the same as what ballerinas do. You have to focus in on a fixed spot. So when in our lives everything seems to be spinning, we feel like we're in a spin. What I've been trying to do in my encouragement to you is fix your eyes afresh on Jesus. Somebody once said this, I don't know who, but I often quote it. When things are hard, for every glance I take at an issue or situation I'm dealing with, take two at God. Keep looking to God more than you're looking on whatever the situation is you're dealing with. Because if not, you're going to end up in a spin and fall over. And you see this again and again in, in David's life. And I've set the Lord always before. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. My eyes are ever on you. And that's been part of my battle the last few weeks. He's just keeping those eyes because it becomes easier to focus on this or focusing on that again, what's happening. It's not working out as anticipated. Get our eyes on God. My heart says, if you seek his face, your face, Lord, I will seek. Just to go after God. See, everything changes in the light of beholding him and his glory. That's when you get to perspective. When you see him in his glory and his majesty and his beauty, everything begins to fall into place. And that's why that's got to be an attitude of our hearts. As it says in um, Psalm 63, where is it? Yeah. Uh, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. And he just talks about beholding his glory. And this links into what I'm going to say in a minute. But just focusing on the first few verses, it's like, I'm going to seek you. It's part of that kind of running after him. I'll come back to the rest of the verse in a minute because it's a natural overflow of my last point. A lifestyle of praise and worship. It's interesting when you look at the life of David and I mentioned all the brokenness and he starts off by voicing his concerns so often at the beginning of one of these psalms and then somewhere along in the journey of that psalm as he begins to refix his eyes upon God and begins to get a fresh perspective, he begins just to praise God. 
You know, he's not, he's not denying it. I mean, that first verse is a good example. I've thrown myself headlong into your arms. I just love that because I remember my children used to just jump and trust me to catch them. And they wouldn't do that now because they're larger than me and flatter me. And, um, and, uh, and celebrating your rescue. So acknowledging that he needed rescue and he's in a place, but he's celebrating that. I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. Psalm 42, you get a little bit of that flow. Why are you downcast on my soul? Why are you kind of, you know, frustration, loss? I acknowledge that. But I want to speak to my heart and say, heart, refocus yourself, recenter yourself on God. For I will yet praise him. As I remember you, as I remember what you've done, as I remember your nature, your character, even though my soul is downcast, I will remember you. I will praise you. Because that's what happens when we press into God. So as we're here this morning, um, yeah, maybe a slightly heavier talk than if Katie had done a talk on Esther. But it seemed like a good opportunity to teach on it. You see, whether you're young or whether you're old, it makes no difference. I know the youth are with us. And this morning, loss and grief, no generation has a monopoly on it. It affects us in different ways. Sometimes we're aware of it coming very clearly in our direction. Sometimes it creeps up on us unexpectedly. But it's life. The question is, what are we going to do in those situations? And so I'm going to draw in from the life of David just a few things. And um, that hopefully will help you, help us to deal with these things. So how am I going to end? You might be wondering. I'm not wondering because I know what I'm going to do. But um, there was a song that really just stood out to me, and we're going to play it. It's um, called Promises. It's called um, by Maverick City. Uh, I don't think we've ever done it in church. And uh, hopefully technology is going to work. I'm kind of looking at Joseph. But we're going to play it. But it just talks about some of the things I've talked about. It talks about storms coming, winds blowing, but focusing in on the steadfastness of God. And so I'm just going to, is it good to play in a minute, Joseph? I'm looking. I'm just going to encourage you, if you can stand, I was thinking, how do we respond? If the worship band were playing it, we would stand. So let's just stand. And we're going to play. And if you, if you know the words, sing it as a declaration, wherever you may be. We're going to have an opportunity to respond in a minute and kind of come to the front. I'm prayerful because I'm aware I've touched on difficult and hard issues. But wherever you may be, let us sing this as a declaration of who God is. Uh, if the words are new to you, new song, just chew on the words as they come up. So I'll hand over to technology and hopefully it will, will work.